good. Let's uh, open up our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. We'll work through verse 46. And what we're about to read is actually one of the more motivational scriptures that you can find in all of the Bible. One of the most motivational teachings that Jesus gave as he spoke about some heart issues, some, some stuff that hits us in the fields. And it's been proven that if you really want... If you really want people to move and to do something, you have to appeal to more than just their mind. It's not just about the content. It's about how you make people feel. And Jesus was all over the fields in this, this passage in chapter 25 when he talked about things like this. Like if somebody's hungry, and you can feel that, right? And maybe you've never felt the kind of hunger that some have felt or been in a situation where the hunger was so intense that you wondered if you might pass out, but you're going to make sure that your children at least have enough. If somebody's hungry, give them something to eat. And if somebody's thirsty, can you feel that? Give them something to drink. Again, Jesus is going after the feel on this thing and appealing to what we ought to do as well. And if Somebody is without clothing. They don't have shelter. Well, do something about that. And this passage, chapter 25, has been used by one mission organization after another to motivate or to even be taglines in what they do as a mission organization. In fact, I I think this passage has been used and captured by many of us as the thing that drives us when we really think about being generous. And we do believe, as Ashley said, that living a generous life is the best life to live and helping people that are without food or without clothing or without shelter to make a difference in people's lives. It's the kind of mission stuff that we give to. And for two-thirds of this passage, Jesus is all over that stuff. And then in the last one-third of it, there's a turn in it. And it's almost like a fastball, a heater right down the middle. I mean, it is real and it is strong and it is straightforward. And what you don't see in this last third of it, you don't see a lot of mission organizations leaning into this side of it. And you certainly, certainly don't see people trying to motivate people to give out of this side of it. What you see is very few sermons that get preached on anything but the first two-thirds, the beautiful part, and... Very few sermons get preached on the last one-third of it. But today, that's where we're going to go. We're going after the hardest part of this passage. So strap in and let's get rolling on it. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, 
and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit, to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Last one-third. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? And did not help you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now my guess, strong guess here is even though, I don't know if you caught it, but even though the word hell never came up once in that sentence there or any of those sentences that we just read that's where our minds went right we went to that place yours mine too every time i've ever read that passage it's where my mind goes and where your mind goes matters and what you think about when you think about hell actually matters too it matters a lot what you think about when you think about heaven matters what you think about when you think about this earth matters what you think about when you think about hell It actually matters. And I know when I was younger, when I thought about hell, and maybe you too, and maybe this is sort of where some of us are still at in this room today, but when I thought about hell, I thought about primarily two things. It's a word you should not say, all right? I was taught, don't say that word. I remember sitting in church and hearing the pastor say the word hell, and I'm like, whoa, that's a bad word. So for you kids here, we're talking about something that is in the Bible here today, not using it in a, in a, as a cuss word. But I was taught not to say that word. Secondly, I was taught it's, not, it's a place you don't want to go. It's pretty much what I had. Don't say it and don't go there. And I thought about heaven. And there was kind of two things I had about heaven that I, I knew. It was a word you could say. And it is a place that you wanted to go. So those two things pretty much summed up. And I had heaven kind of painted in my head as a child. This is the best I had, is that it's kind of a, a, a floaty, cloudy, sort of whitey, angel-y sort of place. And hell was a ready, hotty, burny, painty, devil-y place. It's pretty much what I had. And, and what you think about when you think about heaven or what you think about when you think about hell It matters because it leads you to a place, it led me to a place, and maybe a whole bunch of us to a place where you think, so what about hell? I I don't want to go there. What about heaven? I'd rather go there. What about the earth? Oh, the earth. Yeah, I know a lot about the earth. I know a lot about what I've experienced here. 
I know a lot about laughing so hard that I can barely breathe at times. I know a lot about the experiences I've had on earth. I want to stay here as long as I can and milk it for all that I can and stay as healthy as I can right here. And then when it's done, I'd rather go to the floaty, whitey, cloudy place than I would the burning, ready, hotty place. That's the thought. We have to be able to do better than that, right? What we think about when we think about hell actually matters. And the fact that I'm using the words heaven and hell in sentences together, and I've pulled them out like they're counterparts of each other or co-equals and competing for our eternal destiny, says a lot about the cultures that we live in and actually says less about the Bible than the cultures that we live in because to even use these words in the same sentence, how many times, let's just get biblical on this thing, how many times do you think the Bible actually uses the word heaven and hell in the same sentence? Like seven times, 23 times, 142 times? The answer is a big fat zero. Zero times in all of the scripture, not in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament, not from Genesis all the way to Revelation, not one single sentence in the entire Bible puts heaven and hell in the same sentence like they are co-computers for our eternal destiny. There's something deeper, more going on here. In fact, what this tells us, that we often talk in this language and think in this language, tells us more about our culture, actually, than it tells us about the Bible. And what it tells us is that our culture, our thinking of hell in particular, has been shaped more by Milton and Dante than it has been the Bible. Our thinking in the Western culture and the sermons that roll out of one pulpit after another about hell have more to do, have more of their foundation, and these two guys, Milton and Dante, than they are based upon what the Bible actually says about it. And I would not have any of us ignorant about the beauty of heaven, nor would I have us ignorant about this place called earth, nor would I want us ignorant about this topic called hell. So today I want to get at that with you in a way that we begin to unpack this. So this guy named John Milton, you may have heard of him. He was a 17th century poet born in 1608 in London, and he wrote a work called Paradise Lost. Here's a picture that comes out of it. This is a depiction of the beginnings of us to begin to see the infiltration of some some poet into the way that we think about heaven, hell, earth itself. And in this writings of his, Paradise Lost, here's how he described hell. A place of darkness, which the lurid, flickering light of fire serves only to make darker. Geologically, it is a volcanic region, really, fed with ever-burning sulfur. Satan and his comrades have fallen into the fiery gulf, a lake that burns constantly with liquid fire. Interesting. Actually kind of terrifying. 
But the question I would love to answer with you, or at least to raise with you today, is, is that accurate? Is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible only refer to hell as some future reality? And I'm not saying it's not a future reality. What I'm saying is, does it only refer to it as a place of darkness, which the lurid flickering light of fires serves only to make darker? It's a geographically volcanic region with ever-burning sulfur. It's where Satan and his comrades have fallen into the fiery gulf. There's a lake that burns with constant, constant liquid fire. Is that an accurate picture? Is his description descriptive? This matters. Is his description descriptive of what we have recorded from Jesus himself? Because if Jesus is with Milton then I'm with Jesus and Milton. If Jesus isn't with Milton, I'm going with Jesus every single time. This other guy named Dante, his baptized name, this is it right here, Durante de Elhero Delgi Elhieri. It's the last time I will ever say that in my life, all right? And this is why we call him Dante, right? It's like we're not going to, this guy's infernal. Dante's infernal. We've all heard of it, or likely you've heard of it anyway. Because the influence is massive. It's absolutely massive. He's considered to be the, the Italian poet author to have had more influence in the world than any other. For sure. You could absolutely argue that. Because his influence has been all over the Western culture's understanding of what hell is. Here's a depiction of, that comes out of Dante's infernal kind of thinking. And again... It's terrifying, the thought of that. A ruddy, hotty, burning, forevery place. It's terrifying. And the question would be, is that accurate? That's it. Is that biblical? When we encounter the word hell in the Bible, is this the picture that is given? When Jesus is trying to talk about hell, is that a place that's only somewhere other than here? Or is it an experience that's beyond that? And, again, is Dante's description descriptive of Jesus' use of this word called hell? Is it? Because if it's not, I'm out. I'm not with Dante. I'll go with Jesus every single time. What you think about when you think about hell, it matters. It'll shape our living right here on this place called earth. And what we think about when we think about earth, it matters. What we think about when we think about heaven, it matters. For the here and now and for the reverberations throughout eternity. So let's look at the words that Jesus used. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we bang into this word hell multiple times with the words that were used by Jesus and by others in the New Testament. And we only have three words for hell that get interpreted as hell. Three different words that we have interpreted hell. And the first one is Tartarus. This word is slightly different in its meaning than the word Hades which is slightly different in its meaning than the word Gehenna. Three different words that get used for our understanding of what hell is, at least how we have interpreted these words. 
And this word Tartarus, this first word here, this one is used only one time in the entire Bible. It's used in Second Peter. And it's a word that actually comes out of Greek mythology. It's borrowed out of Greek mythology. And it is referred to as a place where the angels that have fallen will be held. 200 angels who have fallen will be held until eventual judgment. Jesus never used that word. And it's a word, again, coming out of Greek mythology that's generally, and if you hear the word right, that's right, it's generally understood to be a word that was used for the holding of 200 specific fallen angels until final judgment for them. The second word is the word Hades. This one's a little more difficult. It's only used eight times in the New Testament. So if you think about the first two words that we're encountering here, they're used nine times only in the entire New Testament. Sometimes, you'll, depending on what translation you have, it won't, it will not interpret it hell because Hades actually is a counterpart to an Old Testament word called Sheol. And the word Sheol is actually, it's, it's a difficult word to fully understand what it means. The best of scholars, and you're hearing me right on this, the best of scholars are saying we think we're quite certain, but we're not 100% certain. They're holding on to this loosely and with great humility. And if you find someone who is telling you they have a lock on what Sheol is, they have a lock on what Haiti is, they know exactly what it means, I would tell you they're arrogant and ignorant. Because these words are ancient words that we have a pretty good understanding of, but not a lock on. And this word Hades, or the word Sheol, it comes from a word we believe that is hollow. Hollow is the word. It's a place that the dead go to, to a hollow, empty place, until one day... There's a resurrection. Are you noticing something here? Milton and Dante don't find their way really into these first two. Like, hollow doesn't feel ready, hotty, burny, doesn't feel any of that. So, what about Gehenna? What about this word? Well, again, this is the word. I mean, if you are reading the New Testament, this is the word you're going to bang into. If you're reading through the New Testament, you see the word hell, chances are really high. This is the one that's being used. This is the one that we need to drill down to. This is the one, actually, that Jesus predominantly uses. And we have seen it already. As we've been reading through, some have asked, and I love this about us, we've been studying this Gospel of Matthew for an entire year almost, and we're in chapter 25, and I've been asked multiple times, I, I noticed that we have skipped over that word hell. Are we going to tackle that? Are we going to tackle? Yes, we're tackling it today, but we waited for it today because we've already hit it seven times. And every single use of this word Gehenna, this word that we translate hell, every single use in just the Gospel of Matthew, just the first book of the, the New Testament, every single use of it has been Jesus' use. He, it, this is his go-to word if we're talking about the word hell. 
I, I have a friend that um, he loves golf and he's a pastor, and he was saying that he's just kind of moved to the place because he said that golf is a super frustrating sport, and he's like, it's so frustrating. And so I've moved to the place that I really I only like to golf with non-Christians. I'm like, what? And he said, the reason I like to golf with non-Christians is because I'm not that good. When I knock the ball in the water, you know, I want to swear, and they do it for me. They just swear for me. And I'm like, that's amazing. And so I was, I was just thinking about, if this is Jesus' go word, Gehenna, I'm like, maybe I'll just give him a ring and say, I got, I got a word for you. You can just substitute this one. You're in a traffic jam and just like, what the Gehenna? I mean, that sounds all right, doesn't it? That sounds okay. Don't do that. All right. So... So Jesus is constantly going to this word Gehenna. What is, what is Gehenna? I think this is the question we should be asking. And this one. Where is it? Where's Gehenna? What and where is Gehenna? And this probably won't surprise us here in Michigan because we live in the Mitten State and we actually have a place like this. Gehenna was actually a real place and we're like yeah makes sense we have a hell michigan too right we got one and the mitten is the only place i know of in the united states where you can ride from paradise to hell in less than six hours go up to the up and make your way down to hell and i was actually talking to a neighbor about a month ago his name's doug and doug was telling me i didn't know this but you can actually be the mayor of hell for a day anybody know that like you can that's true I looked it up online. I'm like, actually, you can. You can sign up and you can put a date in. I want to be the mayor of hell for a day. They send you a T-shirt. They send you a mug. They send you a badge. You get a, a wallet card to prove that you were mayor for the day. They send you dirt from hell. So they send that over to you. And then it's only like 100 bucks. All right? So you can do all that for $100. And, and they actually allow you to make some rules, a couple rules for the day. You get to send out this edict. And I'm like, What? Is this like a real thing? And he said, yeah, it's real. This is his words, not mine. But he was like, I guess they just want to prove that you don't have to be elected to make dumb decisions. You know, right? So you can do it even if you're not elected. You can just buy your way into doing that. And so, anyway, so when Jesus is using this word hell, and when he's trying to describe what it's like, he's in a real place that is, actually, I'll pull a map up. Take a look at this. Right here. So it's a real place just outside of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives just to the right of that, that red dot there. You can actually see it from there. And why a map? Um, because, Jeremy, you haven't been using them, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I'd throw one in for you, buddy. <laughs> All right. But it, does, it shows us it's actually a real location. It's a real place. Gehenna was just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It sat right there where you could see it from the Mount of Olives. It was a real actual place you could go to. And historically, even more important than just it being outside the city gate, more importantly it was this, that, that Gehenna sat in the same area that the Valley of Hinnom was in. And that valley... It was notorious. It had history. The people of Israel knew full well that that place, you went outside the city to get down to that valley. You'd go down to the valley of Hinnom to cheat on God, if you will. It was a place where you'd like think about like going to a cheap hotel to cheat on God. You would begin to worship all these other gods and serve Molech. And at the height of it, 
Not only was it an awful place, but when Jesus spoke about Gehenna, they would have had their eyes on an area. They would have had a, a thought. They, the ancients would have thought about the Valley of Hinnom, and they would have thought about this space that was Gehenna, and they would have known this. That's the place where fires burn. That's the place where we sacrificed children to these foreign gods, to Molech where we killed our own children, where there was weeping and there was gnashing of teeth down in that valley. I mean, it's almost, it's just terrible to actually think about. And beyond that, Gehenna was a place where they actually took all of their city trash out to. And don't think about the kind of trash that we have. Think about the trash that they would have brought out. What don't you want in your city? You would bring out all your refuse out, all your waste product out, all of that down into that area, and they would light it on fire. It was a stinky, smelly, awful place. And when Jesus was trying to describe, trying to describe actions on earth and what it can usher in, maybe just like Jesus, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be just like Jesus? To just start to tell a story, trying to help people understand. Uh, consider the birds over here. See how they just, they fly around and they're not worried about what they're going to eat. No, they don't, they're not concerned about that at all. Do you think you're more valuable to God than these birds? I, w- I want you to give some thought to the The flowers out here. Think about the flowers. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful? Have you ever seen any fabrics that have been woven together that are woven more beautifully than these flowers? God will clothe you. He has you. You do not have to worry about tomorrow. That won't add one thing to your life. This is the way Jesus taught. Now consider the mountain. If you have faith, There was this thing called the Herodian, a mountain, and you've heard us talk about it before. That was a real mountain that was there, and Herod put his palace on top of it that sat just higher than the Temple Mountain. And that mountain, when it was dug up and excavators looked at it, said this is not a normal mountain. It's not that it formed by normal ways. Somebody moved dirt from somewhere to here. There was a mountain somewhere that got moved over to there so that Herod could put his palace up high. Jesus said, hey guys, um, if you have enough faith, you could say to that mountain that's not there, move over to here. And I'm telling you, it'll be done. Greater things than Herod has done, you can do. Just like Jesus, to use an analogy to say, take some seed and just throw that seed out. And there's a farmer that did it. And what happened when he threw the seed out? Some got into the rock and... Some got into the weeds and thorns and others of it others of it got into really good soil. And let me tell you a lesson, a life lesson out of that. Be just like Jesus to say, I want to give you a picture of what the right kind of actions can bring. It can bring heaven on earth. I want to give you a picture of what the wrong kinds of actions can bring. It can bring the valley of Hinnom. It did. That's what happened down there. It can bring Gehenna. Don't forget. Have, have you wondered why so many times during this series 
whether Jeremy, myself, Lori, Ashley, whoever of us is up here preaching, why so many times during this series we've banged into again and again and again and again this teaching that we would we talk about the, the kingdom of heaven, not, not just a future reality, certainly a future reality, but a present reality that we have been called to usher in the very reign and the rule of God right now that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come and that we are the ones that bring it in. Why have we talked about that again and again and again and again over this last year? It's because Jesus talked about it again and again and again and again. Same thing here with this word Gehenna. Let me describe to you not just a future reality. Let me talk about some present stuff here because earth matters. Earth matters. And hell on earth, hell on earth is not the way it's meant to be. Gehenna on earth, all Gehenna breaking out is not the way for this world. Picture Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives. He can see Gehenna and he can see Jerusalem. We've been in this last week of Jesus' life for for well over a month now, just studying the life of Jesus in this last week. And Jesus came over top of the mountain. And there on the Mount of Olives, he's got sight of both Jerusalem and Gehenna. He has memory of all that is good and all that is ugly, all that is beautiful and all that is painful, all the joy and all the sorrow. And he looks down into Gehenna and has sight of this valley of Hinnom and what has happened in that place. And thinking about how people choose to step into that and to usher that into their lives. And Jesus began to weep. To see Jesus is to see the heart of God. To weep. And in the Gospel of Luke, we read the words that happened and they are here. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If only you had known this day, what would bring you peace? But now, it's hidden from your eyes. You can't even see it. You're missing it. You're missing a taste of heaven right here on earth. And a right understanding of heaven and earth and hell you can't separate these three. You've got to hold them together. And the one thing that did separate earth from heaven and maybe lended itself to us to begin to think that somehow it's only about us somehow escaping this world someday. And it's not a biblical understanding of this. But to escape this world someday, and I have two alternatives. Maybe what has lent, lent itself to this is we don't remember the beginning. When God was with Adam and Eve, and he walked with them in the garden. And then that one day we're envisioning God weeping. As he looked over the garden, as he looked over the city, as he saw the future. Adam! Adam! Where are you? I'm over here, Lord. Why are you hiding? I'm ashamed. 
I did something that broke us, that separated us. No, no, no. And then the prophets came calling, come back to me. I, I am he who redeems you. I'll forget your sin. I'll remember it no more. He sent Jesus. For God so loved this world that he gave his only son. He gives us from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible. It's a story of restoration and healing. All the way to the very last book of the Bible in chapter 21. We read this at funerals. Do we understand what it says? When it says that one day, not two days, But one day, yeah, here today we can taste heaven, we can taste hell here on earth. But one day God is in the process of being restorative because that's who he is. And healing because that's who he is. And his desire one day, it's coming. He says, write these these words down because they're trustworthy and true. There will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more death. No more. It's over. Done. And the new Jerusalem, not the present one, will come down like a bride to be with her husband. Where's where's the bridegroom? His name is Jesus. And I will be with again as we were in the beginning. Where it got broken, it's coming back together again. Where Adam hid, we are not going to see a victory over the earth any more than we're going to see a victory over our sin because God himself conquered it in Jesus Christ. And he said, behold, I am making all things new, all things new, and I will dwell with my people again. This is the redemptive story of the scripture. It's the redemptive story of where we're headed. And all of heaven, the Bible talks about it. All of heaven and earth awaits that day where this earth and all of us right here gathered in Christ, we who know the resurrection, he said, if you live believing in me, though you die, you will live. That's the end hope of this game. I'm going to invite the band to come up. and We're we're about ready to worship together. But I was thinking, one of the things that we're wanting desperately for us to grab hold of here in this last three weeks is this. Whether it was Jeremy talking about the rapture, we're talking about end times, or we're talking about heaven and hell, and we don't have a beautiful understanding of what hell is, or heaven is, and we, we don't fully comprehend how how damaging hell can be right here on earth or how powerful heaven can be right here on earth. It's because we don't, we don't fully grasp it. And I, I want to say this as we conclude this section right here, that heaven is way more than you think. And what is coming is way more than you think. And we sing this song sometimes that says, I can only imagine... You know what that says? It doesn't say we can't imagine. It says we can't imagine. I do imagine it. Because when I think about this world that we live in, 
I've had experiences where I've tasted heaven. How much more it's going to be. We've been attempting to take the fear out of, out of end times because that's not the picture of the Bible. The end times that gets pictured for us is this redemptive, restorative God that's coming back. It's a beautiful thing. And one of my dreams, I so hope this happens. One of my dreams is that you and I will still be on planet Earth when the return of Jesus comes. I shared that with someone recently, and they went, whoa, that feels a little scary to me. I'm like, not to me. I'll tell you why. Because when I've been closest to Jesus, when I've been in worship and I get lost in in praise and worship of God, when I find myself in the power of His peace and I feel the joy that goes from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, fingertip to fingertip, when I think about that, I have never been in the presence of God where it hasn't been amazing and beautiful because He's good. It's who He is. And to be able to see Him with these eyes that are human coming back to this planet and to be able to worship Him at that moment, I am sure, I'm sure all of our experience would be so much and so big that we would say these bodies could barely contain it. But what if, what if in our lifetime? We were to see it. We would forever be known as the generation. Forever be known as the generation. That we saw the Redeemer. We saw the Restorer. We saw the King coming back in this mortal body. What was it like? It was almost too much. It was too good. It was too amazing. I had to fall on my face and worship. And worship. And say, Worthy. Worthy is the one that found me. Worthy is the one that redeemed me. Worthy is the one that rescued me. Worthy is the one that ushered me in to the power of His presence. I want to invite you to stand on your feet here. Sometimes we talk about, talk about this moment in worship as a, a time where we're doing some sort of dress rehearsal for what is yet to come. This isn't dress rehearsal. Let our voices join with heaven itself as we worship, singing worthy, 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 worthy is the Lamb who was slain for your sin and for mine.